Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Uh, as usual, joining us is Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, Chase? Wonderful. How are you today, Joe? Great. Thank you. Uh, Jeff is not going to join us today, but we do have a guest panelist. I don't think that those two facts are uh, linked necessarily, but we have uh, Tim Broadwell with us uh, this afternoon. Appreciate having you on, Tim. Yeah, glad to be here. Do not claim to replace Jeff. Okay, uh, so um, we're starting a, a short series of looking at the gospel accounts, and we've asked Tim to come on and kind of walk us through the gospel according to Luke. And uh, uh, I've been a part of classes that Tim has taught on the book of Luke and have appreciated his insight and uh, the connections that he's made through the book. We'll certainly not exhaust the uh, study of, uh, of the book of Luke, but hopefully by the end of our 45 minutes together, we'll have a better appreciation about maybe how the, the book lays out and major points of the book. Um, uh, how would you, Tim, um, describe what your objective is in helping us understand Luke better? Yeah, so my goal is really to give us some tools to better understand the book next time we read it and study it. So if I can give us some framework, some themes, the understanding of Luke's purpose, the structure of the book, uh, that then that, that if I can get us that in our heads, that's the goal. So that again, next time you go to read it or study it, uh, maybe that's in your in your head and helps you understand it better. Very good, very good. So where would you start with that? Acts chapter one, of course. <laughs> that, that that makes perfect sense. Um, wait, I thought we were studying Luke. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So let's uh, go to Acts one. I'm actually going to share my screen here. Um, let's just see some slides that may help us along the way. So are you seeing the? Uh, yep, it's the up. Luke slide there. All right, great. Um, so yeah, so I, I want to give some tools. Yeah, I want to start in Acts 1. Um, as you see in my subtitle down here is all that Jesus began to do and teach, which is from Acts 1 and verse 1. And if you're wondering, well, why am I going to Acts 1, 1 to learn something about Luke? Acts and Luke are written by the same person, Luke. And, and we should really just see them as volume 1 and volume 2 of, of really the same thing. He's writing to the same person, Theophilus. And he's uh, telling essentially the same story. He's just continuing that story into the book of Acts. And so in, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, the first account I composed, which would be Luke, uh, Theophilus, and he says, it's about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which of course implies that Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. And I would say that's really through the apostles and the Holy Spirit. But that tells us uh, that maybe a good summary of the book of Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so I, I, I kind of wanted to say, all right, there it is. We're done. Uh, this overview of the book of Luke right there, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, but perhaps there's a little more that we can say about it. So, um, yeah, I want to go ahead and dive in and, and look at that. Uh, if uh, you're following along online, you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke 1. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. 
Um, while, while we're doing that, Tim, is there any significance? So we know a little bit about Luke, mainly from the book of Acts, um, but this fellow Theophilus that he's writing to, um, would you make any point about the meaning of his name and maybe seeing the character of a person that's going to be reading these volume one, volume two? Sure, sure. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. So okay. I, I plan to look at who Luke is and then we'll look at who Theophilus is. So yeah, good, uh, good. Um, so yeah, so for the first question I want to ask is who is Luke? Who, who is this guy that's writing this book? And we'll just briefly go through some things. Again, if you're following online, uh, you can go back later and pause it. And if you want to look up these specific verses, but there'll be a, a verse next to most of these. We won't go read them now for just for the sake of time, but who was Luke? He's a fellow laborer of, call, of, of Paul. He's called in Philemon, verse 24. Uh, he traveled with Paul frequently. Uh, the next time you go read the book of Acts, you might notice that throughout the, the narrative, sometimes it says Paul did this and then he did that and, and went there and sailed here. And then other times it'll switch and it'll say, we went here and we sailed there and, and we met these people. Um, well, Luke's writing it, it's clear that Luke is with Paul. So he, he, he traveled with Paul extensively. Um, we see he was very faithful to Paul in 2 Timothy. He was a physician by profession, so a well-educated man. He appears to be a Gentile in, in Colossians 4 there. Um, it, it, Paul seems to be listing some fellow laborers, and he first lists some people of the circumcision, then lists some others. So it appears that uh, he's, he's, a, he's a Gentile. And I think it's an interesting thing to note. Um, he writes at a higher level of Greek than uh, the other New Testament writers, um, especially if you were to compare him to John or something like that. Um, so a, a way to think about that, um, this is like if you were to read something my brother wrote, who has a master's in rhetoric and composition versus something that I wrote, you would notice a difference. He was going to write in bigger words, more complex sentences, uh, those kind of things. And mine's going to be much simpler language. And so if, that, if you were to read Luke versus John, you'd see the same thing. Uh, so that, that's, that's kind of the idea there. And, and just gives us a feel for, for Luke the man and, and how he's writing. But yeah, so he's writing to this guy, Theophilus. Well, Who's that? Um, and really the short answer is, we don't know who Theophilus is. Uh, he, he calls him most excellent Theophilus or um, the noble or something along those lines, depending on your translation. And um, so that's really all we know about him. So it could be he's a wealthy person, maybe a benefactor of some sort who has contracted Luke to compile this narrative. Um, we don't know, but uh, his, the name means lover of God, Theophilus, so Theo. Phylos, um, so Theos would be God, Phylos, like Philo, like Philadelphia, uh, brotherly love kind of thing. So the idea would be a lover of God. Um, and so, so perhaps some have suggested, well, maybe it's a code for whoever he's writing to, that, to, to because they're lovers of God. Um, but to kind of get to the point that you, may, you, you mentioned there, Joe, you know, for us, we can say, well, I'm a lover of God. So the book is perhaps written to me. Um, and, and I need to, to read it and, and carefully and, and know that Luke's wanting to tell me something in, in the book as well. So that's Luke, that's Theophilus. What, do you guys have anything to add to that? Questions, comments? I've just heard it also translated lover, or excuse me, friend of God as well. Um, and so, but still just kind of that same idea of someone who, who's close with God. Um, so, but in either case, it, the author Luke has someone in mind. Uh, for this book and so it's cool to see him opposed to the other gospels give us someone specific in mind to think about yep absolutely 
So let's look at Luke 1, 1 to 4, and I think this will give us a good starting point for understanding the book. Uh, it's, it's, it's a prologue. He's, he's definitely kind of laying out his purpose in writing the book here. And so I think we'd be, we'd be, we'd do well uh, to look at these verses a little more in depth. Obviously, we're not going to go uh, verse by verse through the entire uh, uh, book here, but we'll definitely look a little more closely at these verses. Um, and up on the screen here, I'll put um, these four verses, and, uh, and I picked a translation that I think maybe best captures some of what I believe he's saying here. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll read this here. It says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know what the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So you may know the certainty, not know what certainty. You may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Um, so first thing I notice here is that uh, Luke is not the first one to write about what Jesus did and taught. Uh, he references others who have done it. I think most scholars would put at least Mark's book before Luke. Um, so perhaps he's referring to that. Um, but others have done it, and now he's going to take a shot at it. Um, and that's not to downgrade others. He's not saying I'm, mine's going to be good and theirs wasn't good. Uh, he's just doing something additional. And he kind of lays out, like I've carefully investigated everything. Uh, he's, he talks about eyewitnesses and servants who have handed things down. You know, perhaps he's talked to some of these eyewitnesses. Um, what have you guys heard? If you, usually uh, there may be a couple of people um, that we think maybe Luke might have talked to as eyewitnesses. Who do you guys normally hear as, as possibilities? I think in the early chapters, you've got so much detail about uh, John and his family, Zacharias and Elizabeth. So it seems as if one of them, but then I think maybe one of the most prominent ones would be Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, some of the statements that Luke especially writes about her, it seems like she, maybe she had been interviewed by the, uh, by the author, Luke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he seems to um, give more detail into John's birth than, well, maybe the only one who I think he gives any detail about John's birth. Um, and, and so he, he's, he's got more focus on that. And then, yeah, he, he says things about Mary, that, about, about what's going on in her head and in her heart. Um, and so it seems like he would have talked to her. And then clearly in the book of Acts, I think he's talking to Paul. I mean, he's traveling with Paul all the time, right? So um, and I'll just say multiple times in this conversation, I'm just going to be treating Luke and Acts as, as one unit. Uh, again, volume one, volume two of the same thing. So uh, we'll refer to both a lot of times. You know, one of the things I've always thought was interesting about uh, Luke's gospel, if you were to ask someone, who would you rather hear from? Somebody that saw Jesus and was with him and talked to him, or would you want to talk to someone who just talked to the eyewitnesses? I think on the surface, someone might say, well, I would rather just talk to someone who actually saw and heard Jesus. And obviously that's the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of John. But there's really more advantage, uh, a lot more advantage, I think, for us to be students of Luke because Luke is really in the same boat that we were in or are in. We did not see Jesus. We didn't see him walk on the water. We didn't see him raised from the dead. And it appears Luke didn't either. He's this Greek person, this physician, and so he is investigating all these things in the same way we would want to by talking to eyewitnesses. And so that's why I value the gospel of Luke so much um, for my own personal convictions, because Luke likely hadn't met Jesus and I haven't either. 
Um, but I can listen to the stories of those that did walk with Christ. And uh, so it kind of puts us on the same level with Luke, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So he says he's writing an orderly account. Uh, so your version may say an orderly sequence or the New American Standard says in consecutive order. Um, and, and so then, again, Luke is carefully researched and he's doing that. So, so why carefully research and why put it in, in this orderly account? Uh, well, at the very end of, the, of these section of verses, he says, you know, so that the office may know the certainty of the things about which uh, he's been instructed. So uh, he, he, he wants the office to be, to be, served, be sure, to be certain about what he's been taught and what he's been instructed in. And uh, so I think that's, that sort of summarizes uh, Luke's goal. Um, now, I want to say a couple of things about it. Um, so the New American Standard translates this consecutive order, that one little phrase there. And uh, I, I intentionally picked the Holman Christian Standard here because it says in an orderly sequence. Um, so I want to ask this question. Is Luke or, or any of the other gospel writers, are, are they writing everything chronologically? Or maybe another question to ask, are they writing just the facts? Are they just presenting the facts of, well, this happened, therefore I wrote it? Um, is it is it purely chronological? Is it purely just the facts? Um, and and my argument is going to be, no, not necessarily. Uh, he, there are facts, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not fiction. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, consecutive order is the best translation here. And I don't think the point is I'm just writing it in order with just the facts. So let me re rephrase my question. I'll let you guys comment if you like. Um, is there a danger in saying, well, no, let me back up. Let me back up. I think often we use this prologue in apologetics classes to make the point that the writers are not making this up, right? They, they Luke carefully researched. Uh, he, he's, he talked to eyewitnesses. He's got reliable. Or, so therefore, the Gospels are reliable sources from which we can get what really happened to Jesus. And that is true, we can, that's a, and this is a good place to go for that purpose. Uh, so that's true, but is there a danger in saying the following? Well, Luke and the other gospel writers, they're just recording the facts exactly as they happened. There's no bias, no agenda. Um, they're just recording what the eyewitnesses told them happened or what they saw themselves, right? They're just yeah. laying out the facts and letting you decide, right? That, that's, that's just an objective reporting of exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, with no bias, no agenda, no underlying message. What's the, is that, do you think that's true? And, and what's the danger if it's not true? Yeah. So I would initially say, no, that's not true. Um, and my first question would be, well, then why do we have four different accounts? If they're all recording the same thing, then why do we have four different accounts? Um, it all goes back to purpose and intent and audience, as you've already discussed. But really, I think more purpose and intent. Um, and you can especially see this when you compare for instance, the gospel of Matthew with the gospel of Luke. Matthew spends a lot of his gospel saying things like, and, and Lord willing, we're actually going to have John Weaver. Is that his name? Right. Um, yeah. He's going he's to come on in a few weeks and do Matthew for us. But what's emphasized a lot in that gospel is this happened because it was written and it'll quote the Old Testament. And Matthew is pointing to the Messiahship and the, the Christness of Jesus. And for a lot of Jewish people, that would be really important. And so he has a kind of a different purpose with some of the stories he tells to emphasize that kingship and messiahship of Jesus. Whereas Luke, I, I think, has a little bit of a different angle and purpose. Is that kind of what you're getting at, Tim? Yeah, but yeah, something right along those lines. Yeah. Um, so, so if you, oh, sorry. I was going to say, so if you, if you look 
if you don't look at any of that, you kind of miss the whole purpose of the person's book to begin with. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's a big part of it. Um, See, so yeah, I don't think that he's he's saying I'm writing it in chronological order. In fact, I think I can point to some specific times in the book where it seems to not be in chronological order. Um, and oh, for time's sake, we won't discuss that. But uh, if you compare Luke four twenty three and Luke four thirty one, I think you'll see um, he's presenting those two stories out of order. Um, so, but it's not chronological order. Well, what is it? And and I would say it's thematic order uh, in a way that brings out certain points about Jesus' teachings or Jesus's or the lessons he wants us to learn. Now, I do think the book and, and all the Gospels are generally chronological. I mean, they start with his birth or the beginning of his ministry, and they end with his death and resurrection. And so, generally speaking, they are chronological, but the writers are willing to break chronology to make a point. Um, and so I think that's, that's what governs their, their order of how they arrange the, the stories. And so it's really not free from agenda, if you will, right? I mean, and, and that, that, that sounds bad to us. We'll talk about it in a moment, but uh, there is a message. They are trying to convince us of something. Maybe a better way to put it, 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 it um, doesn't sound as bad to us. It's persuasive writing. I mean, they're trying to persuade us of something. Yeah. Um, and so it's selective storytelling is another way to say it. And they, they wanted to give us the right view of Jesus, of who he is, of what he taught, and, and, and really what we should then do about it. Um, Tom Hamilton put it this way, uh, Luke is not telling what Jesus did just because he did it. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's reason behind it. And so if that bothers us, well, well he's, he's writing with an agenda. He wants, you know, a couple things. Um, this came from um, a commentary by Joel Green. He says, the idea of a purely objective reporting of the facts with zero agenda was totally unknown in the ancient world. Um, and that's really more of a modern concern, or at least we like to think it's a modern concern. Um, and that brings me to my second point, which is no one has no agenda, right? That's nearly impossible. People who claim to have no agenda are probably the ones you should trust the least. Um, and and we, we all do. And it's really just a matter of acknowledging that and, and, and what, our, what the, our, the message we want to share is um and and what our our biases might be or whatever uh we all have things we want to convince people when we're when we're telling what happened so luke is trying to convince us of something he's got a purpose um and so um and so here's why this is a danger if we begin looking at the gospel as merely just reporting facts i think we'll fail to really understand them and we might even begin to fail to trust them and it might even upset our faith um two quick examples one in, in mark chapter eight Jesus touches a blind man, and he's sort of partially healed. He sees men walking around like trees. Jesus touches him again, and he all of a sudden is, is fully healed. And, and when you just look at that story in isolation, it's easy to come up with all kinds of wild interpretations of what's going on. Why does he have to touch him twice? And so I've heard explanations like, well, the man just, his faith wasn't strong enough, so it took Jesus two touches. Well, since when does the king of the universe limited by someone's faith when he's intending to heal him? Right. Maybe he, he may choose not to heal somebody because of the lack of faith or something like that. But that's different than he's tried to heal him, but the man's faith still isn't strong enough. Um, or and so you can immediately see, well, how that could lead us to a wrong view of Jesus. Right. Or similarly, this, this man was just really, really blind. Well, again, the man who the, the, the God who created this man's eyes cannot heal him in, in one try because he's really blind. That doesn't make any sense. It's going to lead us to a wrong view of who Jesus is. Um, if you back up in that story and look at the context, you realize this guy's an object lesson. The disciples are the blind ones. You go one, just a few verses before that, and you see Jesus saying to the disciples when they don't understand 
what he's trying to tell them. He quotes Isaiah and says, having eyes you don't see. Well, who has eyes who doesn't see? Well, a blind man. And so he then, he then shows them, you guys see some things, you get some things, but spiritually you're seeing men walking around like trees. You're still not there yet. You, you need an, another touch from Jesus to fully understand who he is. Um, and so that's maybe one example of how we need to see how the stories are put together to really fully understand them. Um, another example from the book of Luke. Um, well, I'll ask you guys, uh, the centurion who uh, is at the cross when Jesus dies, Jesus dies and he says, truly this man was fill in the, the son of God. The son of God, right? Well, Luke says, truly this man was innocent. Well, hold up, contradiction, contradiction, can't trust the Bible, my faith is worthless, I'm still in my sin, I've all been most to be pitied, right? Throw out the Bible, it's contradiction. Well, hold up, um, if you look at the story of Luke and what he's trying to do, you realize in the story of the crucifixion, more so than the other writers, Luke is trying to highlight Jesus' innocence. Pilate says three or four times this man's innocent. Herod says he's innocent. The thief on the cross says he's innocent. And the centurion says he's innocent. Um, and so Luke is, is tailoring the, 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 the story to fit the point he's trying to make about Jesus. And if you think about it, if, if who knows what the guy actually said, what exact words came out of his mouth, he wasn't speaking English. He probably, well, he probably was speaking Greek. I'm not sure, but um, who knows what the exact words were. But he, even if he said this man was the son of God, really, at least part of the point he's making is, well, this man was innocent. So Luke's really not changing the message. Uh, he's just bringing out maybe a different aspect, a different nuance of it. And so Luke records that slightly differently than the other writers because of the point he's trying to make. So I think this is an important point to understand. And even as you guys start to dive into all the Gospels, I think those same principles apply to all the Gospels. Uh, yeah. Thoughts? And what that does, Tim, as you've emphasized, it helps us reconcile the things that people are calling contradictions. And so just that principle that you went over is really important. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, yeah. And so he says to, um, to Theophilus and perhaps to us, um, this is so you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And again, I think I looked at that for a long time and thought, well, that's just purely apologetic, right? He's just trying to prove that Jesus was real and that he was really raised from the dead. But I think there's more to that. I think it's also instructive. You know, remember that Acts 1.1 says that this is all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Well, what did Jesus teach? And what did what do we learn from him and, and from what he did? And what Jesus said and did has ramifications on Theophilus's life and our life and, and how he should live his life. And so if Theophilus had been taught correctly, he's learned all about who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did, and what Theophilus and what we should do about it. And so knowing the certainty about what you've been instructed is more than just knowing the facts that Jesus died and was raised, but it's also knowing for certainty what you need to do about that. His Theophilus' salvation depends on that. And so I think when he's saying, um, know the certainty, it's know the certainty of, of what you need to do to be a follower of Jesus. And so I think all this in, in these four verses here, I would summarize this way. Luke is saying, I've done careful research and carefully put together, together this account so that you can be certain you understand who Jesus is, what he taught, and, and what you should do about it. And so I think that's the way we should read the book of Luke and all the Gospels. Um, and I think that's the point he's getting at here. Other thoughts before you go on? No, just what, what great confirmation Luke is providing for Theophilus, uh, verse 4. 
he's he's been instructed in these things. Now he has this confirmation from Luke's uh, writings uh, that those things are uh, true. They're uh, they're not not just factually true, but they are they're the truth. Yeah, good. So what is Luke's agenda? What, what, what's the message he's trying to get across? Um, <clears throat> well, I think I think a helpful way I, I found to kind of try to piece some of this together is looking at the beginning of Luke and the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts and the end of Acts. Because again, volume one, volume two, uh, the, whatever the purpose of Acts is, is not going to be totally separate from the purpose of Luke. It's going to have its own uh, nuance, its own uh shade but but in the end there's like there's one collective purpose for the two books uh, so again starting in acts one um acts uh luke said in in the beginning of acts that luke is all about the things jesus began to do and teach <clears throat> so uh but then so then I, what i want to do is kind of put that together with what's said in luke one where Jesus said, where, 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 sorry, where Luke says, um, so that you may know the certainty of all that Jesus began. Well, so you know the certainty of these things. Um, and so if I kind of replace that last, the verse four of Luke one, if I replace the second half of that with what's what's said in Acts one, then it's kind of says, well, so that you may know the certainty of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And of course, again, again we understand that what he did and taught has a lot of ramifications on our lives, right? But but, but there you go. Know the certainty of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So I get that's getting us closer to a stated purpose here. But then I want to go to the end of Luke and see what he says there. So um, we're actually going to read this so you can turn there. Luke 24. <coughs> so this is Jesus talking to the, the people on the road to Emmaus here. <clears throat> The very end of the book, he says this to them in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. <clears throat> so as we're thinking about what Jesus did and taught, as stated in Acts 1.1, if we get nothing else out of what he did and taught, we need to get his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's, that's the key to all of this. Um, the rest is meaningless without that. And again, it's not only about that, but if you miss that, you really missed it all. And so I think that's the key part of what Jesus did and taught. Suffered, died, raised on the third day. Well, then what should they do about that? What should we do about that? Um, so we just looked at verse 46, verse 47, um, they should repent and they should tell others to repent and proclaim that to the world. And so again, we're adding pieces on to the purpose, a statement of purpose here. Before we get to that though, I just will point out Luke 24, 46, I think is a decent summary of Luke. Luke 24, 47 is a pretty decent summary of the book of Acts. Um, Christ would suffer and rise from the dead is Luke. Repentance, repentance and forgiveness being proclaimed to the world is acts um beginning in jerusalem beginning in jerusalem absolutely yeah um and so what's the purpose of luke and acts together um and i i've putting all these these things together and we could go look at acts 28 the very end and, and we could plug that in and 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 see how the gospel is going to the world unhindered 
Um, and, and so that, that fits into this perfectly. Um, but here, here's what I would say is the purpose, is to give us certainty about all that Jesus did and taught so that we would repent and proclaim him to the world. And again, when we talk about what he did and taught, especially his death and resurrection. Yep. So I think that's it. I think that's his agenda. That's his message. This is what he wants us to get out of the book of Luke and Acts. Give us certainty about all that Jesus did and taught so that we would repent and proclaim him to the world. Now, that's very broad, and it's, and it's not really unique if you compare it to the other Gospels. They're, and since they're all kind of, I mean, in a sense, that's what the Bible is trying to teach us, right, at the end, end of the day, right? Yeah. Um, so it's not unique, but it's very profound, so profound. And really nothing has ever been or will be more earth-shattering, more universe-changing than this truth right here. This is a very important message that, um, that Luke has for us here in, in the book of Luke and Acts. Chase, any other thoughts where you're on? No, I think that's really cool. And I think, I think looking at the bookends like that is really good. And um, it really is good to, to kind of see those purposes, those purpose statements in the gospel of Luke. You'll see them in the gospel of John and uh, you'll kind of see them in the gospel of Matthew as well. So it's just really cool to zero in on that. Yeah, yeah. good. Uh, so I want to kind of look at an outline of the book and uh, so we can get some framework that as we're reading the book, we can kind of build the details we're reading into this framework as we, as we read. And there's really, I kind of divide the book up into four main sections. So the first is chapters one through two, and I call it juxtaposed birth stories. Um, as you'll see, I needed, I, I needed another J letter. Okay. Yeah. But, I was going to say, why don't you go ahead and define that? Yeah. Right. Um, but juxtapose is the perfect word, is the perfect word. So I'm not forcing it here. Uh, so juxtapose would be the idea is to put two things side by side so you can compare and contrast them. And I think that's exactly what's going on in Luke 1 and 2. Obviously, the first four verses are Luke's prologue, which we read. But after that, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 are all about the birth stories of John the Baptist and then Jesus. And I think Luke is inviting us to compare those two stories and, and see the differences between Elizabeth and Mary's the difference between John and Jesus and, and how all that goes down. Um, there's lots of connections between the two. Um, as you'll notice, one of the two keeps one-upping the other, it seems like. Jesus is called the son of the most high, but John's called the prophet of the most high. Um, the, you know, the birth story of Jesus seems to be kind of a one-up from Elizabeth. At least Elizabeth had, you know, had a husband and had a reason to be pregnant, even though she was old. But Mary had none of that. It was sort of almost more miraculous. Yeah. Um, and there's there's things like that throughout those two stories there. Yeah, um, they're both followed by poems too, which is really interesting. Yeah. One one by yes. Mary, one by Zacharias. And some cool uh, Easter eggs to look for here. Um, there's a lot of references back to the story of Abraham and Sarah. Even some wording that's that's virtually identical throughout that section. So go look for that as you're reading as well. Uh, you'll see connections to um, Hannah and, and Samuel as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a theme of the Bible, right? The, the uh, barren woman who miraculously has a child and that child goes on to be somebody yeah. great. That, that's off repeated uh, uh, story pattern in the Bible. And so it well, shows up here again. And it's, it's uh, it really, I think all of it plays into the idea of resurrection because in the case of Elizabeth, a womb is dead and life is able to come out of that. And in a similar way with Jesus, that, that womb has no life in it but God is able to make life appear. 
and yep. this thing will happen in Jesus's resurrection. There's no life, and then there is life. God yep. is the one that makes life from no life. Absolutely, absolutely. So check out chapters one and two and look for some of those things. Chapters three and nine is what I'm calling Jesus and his mission. So I think three and nine are trying to introduce to us who Jesus is, and then he kind of kicks off his mission and, and enters what his mission is. Um, and so uh, God introduces Jesus in his baptism in chapter three. We see his genealogy telling us about his ancestry and what that, what that means. Um, mm-hmm. He's going to kick off his ministry and, and his mission in Nazareth. And he's going to, you know, pronounce, all right, here it is. I'm, I've come, I'm fulfilling what Isaiah said was going to happen. And of course, he immediately almost gets thrown off the cliff or they try to anyway. Um, so great start to his, uh, his uh, ministry there. Uh, but, and then after that, he's just doing lots of healing. He's choosing his disciples, uh, some teaching. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But um, he, he's, he's, we're introduced to who he is. We're kicking off his, his, his ministry and he goes and starts to fulfill that and, um, and shows us through healing, the healing of the people, what it is he's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So that's chapters three through nine. <clears throat> then we have uh, chapters nine B through 19 A. Uh, I'm calling this journey to Jerusalem. Let's actually go look at, at Luke nine verse 51, because there's a key sort of pivot verse here yeah. about which the entire book hinges. So Luke 9.51 says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So here it says Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. Literally, the idea is he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is full steam ahead, looking toward Jerusalem, not turning to the left or right. He's headed to Jerusalem. And what we see is, then chapters 9 through 19 uh, are the, in the narrative. The narrative is depicted as this kind of gradual, continuous journey toward Jerusalem. And he is going to end physically in Jerusalem. Um, but in reality, he's going a lot of other places. And he may even, in, in reality, go to Jerusalem and come back time, at different times. But Jerusalem is sort of representing the his fulfillment of his purpose right so he's he's heading toward the end toward the goal of his ministry uh, which is of course ultimately his death and, and his resurrection mm-hmm. and so he's he's working toward that and so he's he's determined to go fulfill his purpose um and so chapters 9 and 19 are take us from is the middle of his ministry to actually getting to the fulfillment of that to the climax of really the whole book in Jerusalem, uh, ready to die, um, and and so it's, it's depicted as, as that journey. So uh, we won't go read all of these, but maybe we'll look at a few of these. We saw 951, uh, he's determined to go to Jerusalem, verse 53, um, but they didn't receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem, verse 57 of the same chapter, as they were going along, along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So here's this language of this traveling language, um, 10 one. Now, after, the, uh, after this, the Lord appointed 70 elders and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and places where he himself was going to come. So he's going from city to city to city. Again, as the narrative depicts it, he's kind of slowly traveling toward Jerusalem, going from one city to one city. Um, I think we'll see in chapter 13, it seems like he 
uh, stops in synagogues along the way as he goes and teaches there. Uh, but again, he's headed toward Jerusalem. And I, I do think it's not, that he, this is depicting a literal journey to Jerusalem. Um, I, I think it's, that's, that's the way the story is told as, as if he's doing that. Um, I was trying to find a good illustration of that to help understand what we're talking about. And I found a, there's a documentary called The Road to Canton, and it's about the football guy, John Madden. And uh, I, I guess the documentary kind of presents him headed to Canton, Canton, Ohio, which is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So it's not that he literally took a trip to Canton. You know, he probably took lots of trips to Canton. But uh, the documentary is presenting it as this road from John Madden, who was a nobody, to really famous football coach and broadcaster and that journey to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, did you have a thought, Chase? I was going to ask you, so what do you think the significance of that is? And like, what, what do we take away from that? What does Luke want us to take away? Yeah, sure. Um, well, one, it's just, this is the way he's telling the story, right? So he's, he's, he's getting, he's, this is how he's describing Jesus' mission as this journey toward Jerusalem. Um, Acts is going to kick off from Jerusalem as well. We'll talk later. The book of Luke and Acts kind of hinge on Jerusalem as well. And mm -hmm. so Jesus gets us to Jerusalem and then they launch from Jerusalem out to proclaim it to the world. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but then there is, I think, an application for us here. You know, if Jerusalem represents the culmination of Jesus's mission, that's Jesus's death and resurrection. And so um, Luke wants us to go on that journey with him, right? Um, we are supposed to go on the same journey as well, which really puts a new light on some of these passages like in chapter 9 and verse 23, for instance, uh, where he says, if any, anyone wishes to come after me, where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. If you're going to go with him, you got to go to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? You're going to die. You're going to be crucified, but be raised from the dead. So if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You want to follow Jesus? You got to go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem like Jesus did, bring your cross, because that's where you're headed. Um, and but then of course with that comes the resurrection as well. Uh, so same thing at the end of nine when these people are wanting to follow him and he's kind of given them, well you got to kind of count the cost here if you want to follow me. Um, well we're following him to Jerusalem on that same mission to to sacrifice ourselves, uh, give ourselves over to the Lord as a living sacrifice, um, and and then be raised to newness of life. So I think that's that's a a good lesson for us there. Uh, so the story climaxes then in this final week in Jerusalem, um, um, and uh, where he's there's this escalating conflict with the uh, with the Jews. In fact, um, the I, I noticed last time I studied this that the he never has any interaction with the chief priests until he gets to Jerusalem. In in, in Luke's depiction of the narrative, uh, he I think he may very well. In reality, but as Luke depicts it, he's actually actually as Luke depicts, he's never in Jerusalem until uh, the triumphal entry in chapter 19, um, except chapter two as a kid, and then Satan brings him to the to pinnacle of the temple in chapter four. But public appearance in Jerusalem, uh, we actually in the book of Luke never see him in Jerusalem until he's completed this journey to Jerusalem. Um, and there's this escalating conflict now. He's in front of the chief priests, and they're bringing all the all their you know. They're big guns against him, trying to trap him. Um, and of course, ending with his betrayal, the trials, the death, the resurrection, which is all the culmination of his ministry and his purpose to, to die and to be a sacrifice 
um, so that we may would repent and have life with him forever and proclaim him to the world. Um, and so um, that, that that's the basic uh, outline of the book, four main sections. But I want to see some more thoughts around this, this pivot verse here and, and what, what's on each side of that pivot that may help us as we uh, read the book as well. Uh, so um, chapters one to nine, like we said, really focus on who Jesus is. And you'll notice as you read chapters one to nine, especially three through nine, there's a ton of questions asked about Jesus or statements made that are clearly pondering who Jesus is or have some realization of who he is. So uh, I'll show you this here. We're not going to read all these, but just skim through this. These are all questions that are asked about Jesus in chapters one to nine. The one exception is the first one in 166 is actually asked about John the Baptist. Um, but if you answer that question about John the Baptist, it's going to lead you to say, well, who's Jesus? Because John is leading us to Jesus. So you might as well ask the question about Jesus. But all the rest are all about Jesus. Well, put all this together, it's kind of like, well, man, this is clearly something Luke's trying to answer is, who is this guy, right? Who is this Jesus guy? Um, well, it is answered. And back to your point about bookends, Chase, chapters three to nine are bookended by God saying, this is my son. At his baptism, this is my beloved son. And at, at um, the transfiguration in chapter nine is, this is my son. Listen to him, right? Um, that's the answer to all these questions about who is this guy? He does crazy stuff. He does these miracles. His teaching is like nothing we've heard. Who is this guy? He's the son of God. And that's where we get. Interesting, interestingly, between the two parts of the book, there's less teaching. If you just flip through, if you have a Bible that puts Jesus' words in red, uh, you'll notice there's a lot of red after chapter 9. There's not much red before chapter 9. A lot more teaching after chapter 9. Uh, there's 14 miracles in 1 to 9. Um, I, I'm not sure what to do with that. There's fewer miracles in the second half. Um, if you guys have any great ideas, let me know. Um, and then right at the end of 9, there's these four predictions about his death. And I think what that's doing there is we're learning all about who Jesus is in 1-9. Now we've answered that question, what's, his, what's he going to do? Here's who he is. What's his mission? His mission is to go to Jerusalem and die um, as, as this sacrifice for all, all people. And so there's these four predictions of his death and ascension there at the end of uh, this section, 1-9. And then after chapters 10 to 24, again, depicted as a journey to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission, it culminates in his death and resurrection. There's more teaching, more red letters, and there's just six miracles. Um, and, and these numbers of number of miracles, that's my counting. You know, it seems like miracles always get counted differently, right? Well, is the resurrection count or is that its own category? Well, I, I honestly don't even remember how I counted them. But um, there are fewer miracles the second half of the book. And again, I'm not sure what to do with that, but Go read the book and see if you can figure it out. There's um, perhaps some significance to the slowdown of the miracles. Uh, perhaps the miracles are teaching us something about Jesus or giving us opportunity to learn something about Jesus, which maybe fits well in chapters one to nine. Um, but uh, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's the breakdown. Um, and real quick, some themes to, themes to look for as you read. Just look for these ideas to pop up over and over again. Salvation, uh, role reversal. This is the idea of exaltation of the lowly downfall of the proud, right? Think rich man and Lazarus, that kind of thing. Uh, that pops up over and over again in the book. Uh, prayer pops up a lot. Uh, money and teaching about money and wealth. 
and the Holy Spirit comes up, I think, um, perhaps more than I expected, and in some places I wouldn't have expected it um, last time I read, the, read through the book. So look for those themes as you, as you read next time, and um, I think that's all I got. We're about out of time. A few more things I'd love to share, some connections between Luke and Acts, but uh, what, what, what are you guys' thoughts through all that? So one thing I think uh, might be interesting to consider, and I would certainly not be dogmatic about this, but uh, the Luke 951 is just really intriguing, uh, the emphasis on Jerusalem. And if I understand it right, the word Jerusalem means uh, teaching of peace. And so you have, a, you know, this place of, of peace and even the, the chart that you have right up right there from Luke 9 on, uh, Luke 10 on, there's much more teaching that is going on. And when he gets to Jerusalem, you have this emphasis on, uh, you know, like Luke 19, 42, uh, if you'd known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, um, or when he appears to the apostles, you know, peace be to you, my peace I, le I give you. Um, uh, I almost wonder if, if Jerusalem is this place where God is offering peace, spiritual peace, to, to mankind through Jesus. And so kind of tying the person and the place together, um, that name is just so appropriate. Uh, I may be reading a little bit too much into all of that, but uh, peace seems to be another kind of common theme, not, not overtly, uh, but maybe subtly in, in the book of Luke. Yeah, yeah, may very well be. And I like the idea of tying the place and the person together. I mean, I think part of the narrative picture Luke's trying to paint here is that, you know, he's going forward toward his destiny. That's in Jerusalem. And 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 uh his destiny and, and Jerusalem are all wound up together. Jerusalem represents where he's headed, where he's going, what he's going to do. Um, and so the 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 two just kind of become uh can become one in a sense. Chase, you got anything else you want to add before we close off? Nope, not, not today. Tim, we appreciate you coming on for this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel vindicated by uh, uh, suggesting uh, Tim uh, lead us through this study. Uh, I really appreciate the work that he's put into this book. And um, uh, again, if somebody would like the, the charts or to, to go through this, I'm sure that we we'll, could find a way to, to share those. If you would uh, shoot us an email or, or make a comment maybe on Jeff's Facebook page, um, uh, we can uh, try to provide that so you can look through it slower and look through it as you read through the, the text. Uh, so thank you very much for, for joining us, Tim, and for all of those that will be listening uh, to, to this podcast. Everyone have a, have a great and blessed uh, afternoon.